As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Soccer 101, the podcast where we tackle the soccer questions you never knew you had. There are hundreds of soccer teams across the US, from rec teams in parks to CONCACAF Champions League winning behemoths. All those teams started with an idea. But how do you turn that idea into a club? Is it possible to start an American soccer club from scratch with belief and ideals, or is it like P. Diddy once remarked, all about the Benjamins baby? On today's (laughs) Soccer 101, we're looking at how to start an American soccer team, whether that's locally, regionally, or at the top table. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, we have, hello, Mr. Taylor Rockwell. Hello, my friend. This shouldn't be a complex issue that we're going to resolve in 45 minutes at all. Should be straight and to the point. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Graham Rutherford, hello, how are you? Hi, Ryan, I am fine. The other day we talked about if TSS was a professional team, whether what our kits would be like, and now we're doing a 101 on how to launch and register right a team. Are, are we are we launching a team? Are we going to have a pro soccer team next year, next season? Yeah, we're showing our hand a little bit here, aren't we, Graham? A little bit. <laughs> well, we should, maybe I should start off at the top. Have either of you, for clarity's sake, ever started a team before? I have started and co-founded two rec league teams in yep. the US. That's as far as my experience goes. Taylor? Yeah, the same. Uh, rec league, like amateur level, indoor and outdoor, a few of those. Uh, and they are... Very much like herding cats. I imagine running a whole club is like herding a herd of cats, I guess. I'm not quite sure how that would work. But yeah, that's about the extent of my uh, organizing thus far. A herd of herd of cats is called a parliament of cats. (laughs) Of course, of course. (laughs) Graham, how about you? Yeah, I started Real Madrid. (laughs) That was you! Oh, I mean, prove that I didn't. (laughs) Can't. Checkmate, you've done it. Well done. Your team's doing very well, Graham. You should be very proud. Thank you. All right. Um, well, Graham, well, you mentioned a European team there. Before we get started, uh, we should probably note there is a difference in the system of registering and starting teams and working your way up the pyramid and such. Um, things what? are a little different in, in the States as they would be in Europe, Graham. Absolutely. This is a much more 
difficult topic to research and talk about with with regards to the American soccer landscape than it would be in most European countries, certainly in Scotland, where the answer to how do you register a team is basically you go to the Scottish FA, you register your team, you prove that you're compliant with their criteria, and they place you in a league somewhere in the pyramid. Um, In America, much more complicated. It's a unique ecosystem. You still have a pyramid, but it's a fragmented pyramid, and that all makes it very complicated to get a new team uh, started in the US. There isn't that mobility between levels of the pyramid, so you would you generally have to apply to a league and affiliate yourself with that that league. And obviously, we have seen a number of expansion teams to MLS in recent years, some of whom have paid huge expansion fees to enter that league. And there's also been expansion teams in the the USL, both the, both the Championship and League One and uh, MLS Next Pro, all the way down. But then you also have various bodies and organisations that even if you're within that league, you would also need to be registered with, whether that's the, the United States Adult Soccer Association or one of the other member associations of uh, US Soccer Federation. All right, so lots to get into, it sounds, Graham. Uh, we're going to talk about registering and starting like an adult pro team, and also we're going to talk a little bit about the youth side of things. Uh, Taylor, why don't we start off, maybe a little Cliff Notes introduction as to how you would register a pro team, affiliate, yourse- affiliate yourself with a league. What do you need to like very basically get started? Should this be your thing? Should you be like um, an everyman on the street rather than, let's say, a billionaire? Sure. I mean, yeah, that's the thing. Because if you're a billionaire, the answer is, I guess, easier, but similarly complex in that you've got maybe more things to have to deal with. If you are not a billionaire, I think uh, from talking to some people who have founded clubs, it seems like the first thing you have to do is understand that you're not founding a team, you're founding an organization. And if you're just registering a team to play in a league, you're creating an amateur team like Ryan and I have talked about. That's not that hard. And there are apps to help you register players and make sure that registration fees are paid. That's pretty easy. What is harder, by by all accounts, is creating an organization that is going to exist, ideally, after you are done being affiliated with them. You want them to be this longstanding thing. And what you then have to do is figure out basically what the area of need is. Why are you starting this club? Is it because there's no other uh, team in operation? Is it because you want to someday make it to Major League Soccer? Is it because there's an underserved community that you want to incorporate? From there, yeah, then you're doing your research with what the kind of local operations would be, who you need to register with at a state level. And if you want to be a pro team, which different pro league you are going to try to join because each one in the U.S. has different barriers uh, for membership, usually rooted around money. Uh, Certain leagues are going to charge more than others. MLS obviously charging the most to be an expansion team, but USL, USL2 have their own expansion fees. I think something like UPSL or NPSL, they have more registration fees that you have to pay. They are a little bit uh, cheaper in that regard. So I think what you're looking at is, do I have the money to even start this organization? But then you also have to look at what does it take to keep this organization running? Because you need front office staff, you need scouts. Uh, With certain leagues, you do need trainers and things like that. So there are many different personnel and considerations to be uh, considered. So I'm not just showing up with 11 guys and saying, one team, please, essentially is what you're saying, Taylor. By all accounts, the soccer side of things is the easy part. That basically, if you have tryouts, people are going to show up once you hire your coaches. They're handling the training and the game day stuff. It's about 
getting people to attend those games, getting people to buy into the team, getting sponsors to come on board, convincing those sponsors you're going to be around for a while, basically getting engagement, getting involvement, getting people to attend the games and care about the team. That is the hardest part of owning a club. Grant, does your uh, research concur with Taylor here? Yeah, absolutely. And one of the references I have used for this this podcast is uh, is Dennis Crowley and the yep. team he created, Stockade FC. I've spoken to Dennis a couple of times for a couple of articles, and he has uh, blogged how he was able to start a team in the fourth division, the NPSL. He has basically his whole mission with Socket FC was to create a how-to guide, which has been very handy for for this podcast, how to start a team in America, because it didn't feel like there was a lot of transpar- transparency in that process. And so he wanted to provide that that transparency. And so he's he talks about everything from how to do ticketing to how to wash the kits and expansion fees at certain levels. So one of the things he notes is that the buy-in that you're going to need to enter a league, even at NPSL level, he paid around $12,000 to enter NPSL. And that's the the fourth tier of American soccer. And obviously it goes up to MLS levels where $325 million have changed hands for a franchise. But basically he, 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 estimates that around you're going to need around fifty thousand dollars for your first season at fourth division level as uh, as proven by his own experience with stockade fc that's quite a lot i'd say that's uh that's not coming out my back pocket taylor um how about the youth path taylor if i wanted to start a team for my kids let's say yeah, I think it, similarly, it is both complicated and simple that you find the local sort of governing board. Uh, usually in your state, there's going to be a state board and sta- state youth board at that. I think Virginia Youth Soccer League is the one that runs or Virginia Youth Soccer Association is the one that runs it here in Virginia. And uh, you basically have to, I think, consult with them to make sure that you are uh, abiding by their standards for coaching, for recruitment, for uh, field conditions and facilities and the like. Uh, but I think you also probably want to look at your local level to to see what the other options are, who else is com- kind of competing in your local environs, because it might be, first of all, that there is, like, you might not know that there's already a club in existence, and so you can kind of work with them or sort of become involved with them. But if there isn't, then you're talking to, yeah, local state uh, organi- organizers and local organizers to register and then get the team running, and that's going to require you either acquiring facilities or having lease agreements with individual counties or cities to make sure that you can use facilities or you're buying your own, but again, and that's going to be fairly expensive. Turns out land, not cheap these days. Uh, so <laughs> I think th- those are going to be two big things. And then again, it's going to be word of mouth. How do you get out to the community that you have this organization, that there's going to be tryouts, or it's going to be free to play, or it's going to be pay to play, but then what those fees are going to be, there's just many, many different options to be considered. Again, the kind of consistent thing I've heard is basically that it's not a part-time gig. It's not a thing that you can sort of go into, uh, sort of like lay the stakes down and then you're done and somebody else will take it from there. It's a lot of work. It's a full-time responsibility because, uh, again, you're starting this organization and there's going to be many different aspects. And if you want to do it right, you got to answer all those questions, uh, including what league you're going to participate in. And here in Virginia, there's different levels, different standards uh, of what you're going to have to do to be able to compete in those, both on pit, on the pitch and off. So it's, it's a lot of consulting meetings, conversations with different organizers, different state agencies to make sure that you are in compliance or able to be in compliance before you even get off and running. All right. So I've, uh, I've got my team together. I've got my facility. I've got my scouts. I've got my coaches. Uh, I've done my bureaucratic requirements. 
What next? Where do I enter in the pyramid? We're going to answer that and much, much more after this very short break. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Welcome back to Soccer 101. Now, I, uh, it, it's obligatory for me to mention AFC Wimbledon in any recording I do. Hmm. Uh, I didn't start AFC Wimbledon, um, Taylor, but I was there at the start. I am a co-founder of the club, technically, and this is a club that started literally by holding trials in a park um, to hmm. get players, and it literally started grassroots level like that and worked our way up. We entered- Did you go for a trial? I didn't have a trial. No, maybe I should have done because I would have failed miserably, to be honest, Graham, is why I probably <laughs> didn't do it, to be honest. Um, but but um, we started in the ninth tier, actually, Graham, uh, of, of, um, of the soccer pyramid in the UK. And basically the way it works there is you start in the ninth tier, then you can get into the eighth and get promoted and promoted and promoted. Things, Graham, don't quite work like that in the US. Have you got any insight into the pyramid and how it's structured? So... Uh, and the potential entry points I would have if I were to start an American soccer team. Yeah, so as we said at the top of the show, American soccer is rather different to most countries when it comes to the the soccer pyramid and just the general structure of the sport. You do have a pyramid in American soccer, but the level the levels of that pyramid they almost exist individually. Um, there's not a lot of or no mobility between them, so you still have designations of divisions, but in a unique way that you don't move between those divisions without kind of applying to that league to join that league as an expansion team. So you have Division 1, which in America is MLS, Division 2 is USL Championship, and then it gets a bit confusing, where USL, (laughs) League 1, the National Independent Soccer Association, and MLS Pro are all considered Division 3, and then once you get down to Division 4, you have countless divisions, or leagues, I should say, that are all considered uh, Division 4. So that is... That's uh, unique. I'm not sure there's another country that that does it like that. Um, And basically, you have to choose, as I said at the top, you have to choose what level you want to to go into. And there's all sort of criteria. So if you want to gain entry to USL, there is actually a form you can fill in on the USL site if you're interested in launching an expansion team. And someone from the organization will get in touch and... um, as far as I'm aware, there isn't a form like this on the MLS site where you can fill in how much you're willing to pay as an expansion fee. 50 bucks would be uh, my suggestion. Um, but if you go back to the USL website, according to that form, it takes the following things into consideration when assessing a new team, strong local ownership, soccer-specific stadia, viable market size and support. So 
all of those things are, are pre- pretty uh, straightforward and, and, and logical. Much like an MLS, there is an expansion fee to join the USL, but it's nothing like the amount you would pay to get into MLS. How do you get, gain entry into MLS? Well, the short answer to that is pay a lot of money. And I'm joking, but also not joking because uh, Charlotte FC, I believe, was their expansion fee was reportedly £325 million. David Tepper paid for that but- expansion spot. On top of that, expansion cost... MLS will want to see a stadium plan, whether you're building a new one or using an existing one or just using a baseball field. You're going to need to sign players and hire staff as well, and that is also not cheap. Um, so the way the way uh, MLS has expanded over the last 15 years, there's there's usually a, a, a bidding process between different markets, but also once they have settled on a market, there is, there's frequently a process to determine the ownership within the ownership group within that market. So it's it's a very much a, a, a bidding process for MLS where, as I say, they'll decide in the market and then they will decide on the ownership group where maybe you wouldn't have that competition somewhere lower down the pyramids where there, there aren't so many people willing to start a team there. So, Taylor, in, in Europe, for example, where um, you would start a team, you start at the bottom and work your way up in theory, um, in, in the States, is it fair to say... Uh, your entry into the pyramid is determined by the size of your checkbook? Yeah, it, almost always, because fundamentally you're going to have to pay that fee. And I think uh, there was a Sock Takes article written about this, I think as of 2020, uh, according to USL documentation, the current expected initial investment by a team is at least $10.6 million, including a $7 million expansion fee. Excuse me, that was for 2018. So you have to imagine those numbers have only increased from there. And I think the reason for that is because with MLS or USL League One or even USL League Two, you are buying into a a pretty heavily structured organization where you're going to get organizational support. So you're getting uh, like league branded merchandise that is available for you to utilize in your games, which seems like a minor thing, but it, it creates a feeling of permanence. It creates a feeling of professionalism, but you're also getting... I think league resources for how to operate, you're getting information that you might not otherwise get for how to make sure that you uh, exist, continue to exist and exist well at that. Whereas I think with, with, with other leagues like NISA or UPSL, those are the ones that I think are more geared towards grassroots organizations, sort of starting up a, a one individual with maybe a little bit of money behind them, certainly less than it takes for USL, uh, can, can basically get things going or one group can get things going and they can bring in local community organizers or local, uh, community companies to then offset some of that expenditure but ultimately yeah the first thing you're going to need uh is some money unless you want to go the amateur route and like try to win u.s open cup as an amateur team that's going to be a bit of a challenge so ultimately you're going to have to spend a little a little bit of money uh and then maybe uh, slightly more money than you would have expected on top of that just because there's going to be unexpected obstacles like insurance which wasn't a thing that I even thought of but if you want to run a team you've got to have insurance and you've got to find a way to make that as cost effective as you can while still covering all your players so I think you have to learn those little things as you go oh boy sounds like a lot of bureaucracy Taylor is what you're saying uh yeah pretty much pretty much <laughs> but I, and, and I think that that's the nature of starting a company in the United States for sure, but I think also the nature of starting a company that is going to control the potential livelihoods of a bunch of youngsters. And you just want to make sure that everything is in place because if you're a player who's maybe you're in your final year of college and you're going to skip that one because you want to try to turn pro or you've graduated, but this is your chance to go pro. You don't want to join a team that's then not going to exist or not going to pay you or not be able to make things work. Um, and I've heard stories in a more positive way 
of organizers, like let's say there's a team that's owned by uh, a restaurant chain or a guy who owns a couple different restaurants, because with some of these leagues, you're only looking at like summer seasons, he will hire those players to be both like servers in the restaurant, but then also to be his players. And so you're getting them uh, employment, at least for that summer. So they're still making some money. They're obviously not paying to play uh, because that would not be allowed in most leagues. And, and you're sort of helping them with a little bit of stability while also, I guess, benefiting yourself and that you've got players kind of working for you and making sure there's some some level of oversight there but i think ultimately money and organizing is what it's going to take good, good point regarding the insurance taylor i hadn't thought of that at all and that is uh, i can imagine that it can be quite costly i can imagine calling up geico going hello sir <laughs> what would you like to insure soccer club please yeah, I mean, so it's like those things, but then I wasn't aware, like, I, again, I don't, I'm not really as familiar with Team Snap, but the way multiple uh, owners at, at multiple levels were basically just like, oh, yeah, yeah, you have that app, it, like, re- handles everything, it handles registration, it, like, all the documentation is there, it's not that hard. It really was interesting to hear how little the on-field product is a problem for them. It really is. The coach handles all that. The players are playing. If the players are playing, that's great. But we need to make sure there are people there to watch them. We need to make sure that there is food and merchandise there for purchase. We need to make sure that there's a facility for those fans to go into. And that is a question, at least with any USL uh, team, they're going to ask you up front, what are your plans long term for playing in a facility that is soccer specific or one that you own or control? Because they want there to be regulations regarding uh, the actual infrastructure, but also the field itself. They want to make sure that you're playing in a place that you're going to play in every week and you're not bouncing around from high school field to high school field. There's a level of permanence, I think, that is... If not require, then ideal, because for so often soccer in this country has been so fly by night that you want this level of permanence to show we're going to be here. We're a legit organization. We're not just taking your money and running. We're going to be here long term. So you've got to show to us that you're going to be here long term as well. Uh, Graham, one more question for you before we take a break. Uh, I want, I'm going to ask you to editorialize a little bit here, get your opinion. Um, let's say you are an American entrepreneur. You... Mm-hmm. You've sold some NFTs. You've bought some apes. Okay. You've uh, you've made some cash. You've got some cash to uh, dispose of. Are you going to say invest in USL, or are you going to do what many American businessmen have done, or business person people have done, um, and invest in like a mid tier, lower tier European team? Uh, I don't know if you can speculate on the return of investment there, but it, do you think they're comparable? Those two things entering those two systems. Um, not really, to be honest. No, I, I think the, the US system is so unique that you would need some pretty solid guarantees that USL is you're going to return on your investment. And obviously, you're never going to be or not never, but without serious investment and the whole application process we've talked about to, M- to MLS, you're, there's, there's a ceiling on what you can achieve. And recently, certainly in Scotland, but you even see it in, in uh, countries like Belgium, where there's more American owners and more uh, rich owners in, in general. In fact, I think the, the team that's top of the, the, Bel- the Belgian league, uh, Union saint Galoisi, who are not a, a big a big team in Belgium. They were recently bought by rich English owners and they were in the second tier in Belgium at that time. And it's obviously they've been bought with the the idea that they can get promoted to the top flight and then they can potentially get into Europe. And now it looks like they're going to win the, the Belgian title. That mobility in, in American soccer doesn't exist. And the buy-in is so high for MLS that you're going to need like a serious return 
on ML- an MLS franchise for it to be worth your while. And you look at the businessmen that are going into MLS and it's guys that can afford to have a stake in a team for the next like 30, 40 years. That's the gamble that they're making is that over decades it's going to pay out. If you want to make a quick investment, if that's what I'm looking to do, then I think European soccer is, is the place that you can do that where you can rise up two or three divisions in a number of seasons. You can maybe win something and that possibility just currently doesn't exist in, in uh, American soccer. All right, when we come back, we're going to talk about the financial side of things and maybe some examples of teams who have or haven't moved up the pyramid system back shortly. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Welcome back to Soccer 101. Um, Taylor, um, is it possible for my team, I know it's, you know, the US pyramid is made up of a series of closed systems effectively, but is it possible to move up and down? I'm thinking, you know, Las Vegas, for example, if they get an MLS franchise, is that mm. going to be the Las Vegas Lights who, who move up? I know there's exam- maybe examples of that in the past. Um, teams like uh, Detroit City would, would aspire to move up to MLS. Um, when Atlanta United started, they had the Atlanta Silverbacks who were not related to Atlanta United and kind of just no. faded away, in fact. They, <laughs> yeah. were, they were pretty much destroyed by Atlanta. So it can, it can kind of go both ways. What, what, what's your take on uh, moving on up in the pyramid? Um, it, no, it doesn't really happen because ultimately they're, they're disconnected leagues. They're closed systems. So MLS is MLS. If you win USL, you're not going up. What does happen and I think is a pretty smart way to operate uh, – <laughs> It's strange to say this about FC Cincinnati, but I'm going to use them as an example of a team that basically is operating in USL at the time uh, while they are trying to get their MLS franchise approved, Mm. which they do. And then as they're waiting to launch, they're still playing in USL, and that allows them... To start building, they were splashing uh, some money. Fernando Addy, they they bought when they were still in USL. There was somebody else that they brought in as well. just to sort of be able to hit the ground as running as they could. And it also proves to Major League Soccer that this is a group that are already running a team at a professional level. They're able to get people uh, like butts in seats. They're getting people interested in this team. They've got branding. They've got strategy. And so I think it shows a level of permanence and ability to operate that will sway uh, the decision makers at higher levels. And so I think that works that way across a number of different leagues. If you have a USL League 2 team, um, and there can be relegation as well, the Richmond Kickers uh, self-relegated to USL League. Uh, I think it was one then. Um, I think it is still. 
and so they did that because they didn't feel like they could compete with USL championship teams. So they moved down that level. You can go that way. But I also think if you're starting off, starting off with a USL two team and then sort of proving that you have the ability to operate at a certain level that you're making money, you've got fan engagement, you've gone to the rotary clubs and the chambers of commerce and local nonprofits, and you've gotten everybody sort of on board and interested. Then again, you're showing we are a legit organization. We know how to do this. If you move us up a level, uh, then we will be able to operate and we've proven that we can. I think that is sort of the way it works now. And it's not pro rail necessarily, but it's more sort of uh, prove that you can operate and we'll promote you that way. It's like an actual promotion, I guess, as opposed to promotion relegation. Graham, the American dream, as I understand it, is if you work hard enough, you can achieve anything. That, well, that's the dream anyway, isn't it? You can start from the bottom, and if you work, you can work your way up to the top. And it seems to me that the sports system here is a little antithetical to that, in that you, you can only get into certain echelons of the system if you have a certain mobility within the system, Graham. Yeah, and it's it's always been a little bit strange and a bit of a quirk. And look, I'm going to make... Sweeping generalizations here. That's the, this is the disclaimer. But in Europe, you have more of a, a socialist society and it's a very capitalist sporting landscape. And in America, maybe you have more of a capitalist society and you have, it seems like, uh, more of a socialist sporting landscape to a certain extent before uh, Taylor jumps in there. I know it's all about money with sporting but, uh, landscape, but it does feel like with centralization and so on, you, there is a, yeah. a, a kind of socialist element to it there. Yeah. So it's it's always been slightly strange to me that it is that way because it feels like it should be flipped slightly. Um, but it keeps it interesting and gives us stuff to talk about, I guess. Yeah, I mean, monopolies are are odd things that are allowed to exist periodically in the United States. And I would say that's kind of how professional sports work in a number of different leagues. Uh, I think the size of the country is a huge part of that. It makes it really, really difficult to have pro-rail because... A smaller team that like has a couple good seasons and suddenly finds them in Major League Soccer and has to travel across the country uh, back and forth every single week is probably not going to be able to make that happen. So there's obviously geographic obstacles to ProRel, and there's uh, other reasons we can get into for why it could or won't work, uh, or could or might not work, I should say. But ultimately, Ryan, to your point, I feel like the American dream is kind of spun that way. But it's the case that like it's like work hard and you can pull yourself up, but also you're pulling yourself up to the level where billionaires are already hanging out, ideally. And so I think fundamentally, money is going to be the thing that allows you to to be able to do certain things. If you have scarcity brain, you're not so focused on how are we building out a product long term. You're trying to make it happen in that moment for as long as you can. And so I think ultimately you're always going to have that sort of structure in place until basically MLS overexpands and then they have to find a way to be able to accommodate 42 professional teams in one league. And maybe that's where we start getting that sort of weird semi-pro-rel that might end up happening. But until then, I think we're going to kind of have to... Uh, like make peace with closed structures such as they are. Indeed. All right, so we've been through the process of starting an American soccer team from the very bottom, from the youth level, right up to the very, very top. Uh, My final question for both of you, I suppose, is having been on this journey and looked at all the intricacies involved in starting a team, Graham, if you were in the States, would you be inclined to actually start one? Let's say you were a gazillionaire. Would you want to go through this process? 
Um, <laughs> potentially, yes. I think there's, I think there's, there's big upside in MLS at that level. Yes, I think so. I would struggle at the that the slightly lower level, so like second and third division. I think once you get down to third division, it's surely got to be about youth development. And so, you, if you are interested in bettering American soccer, and I think everyone agrees for for America to really become a, a true soccer nation up there with you know the top five soccer nations in terms of winning men's World Cups and and so on. Um, then maybe it needs to just there just needs to be more soccer across across country. So maybe if that is your mission, then yes, starting a soccer team at a lower level would be a rewarding experience. Um, but it's it's a difficult it's a difficult system. I think the biggest merit of the closed closed system, if we're going back to that discussion, is probably uh, certainty. So in in theory, you can attract investors with deeper pockets because MLS or whatever league is, there's a guarantee that they'll forever be in that league. They're not going to drop down and do a Sunderland or a Nottingham Forest. And um, on on the sporting side, there is obviously pain associated with relegation. But I'd also say that there are countless examples of clubs that have kind of withered and died and had a real societal effect in in Europe and South America and so on where you do have a mobility in that 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 pyramid and relegation can be really painful you know you can have youth academies scrapped you can have youth players young players getting abandoned uh, staff getting sacked and you can have stuff that really affects the roots into a local community so cert- there are some merits of have, having that certainty you know that with the right investment the team is going to be there for forever basically but obviously there are there are a lot of drawbacks of the closed system as well most of them related to that lack of mobility taylor um are yep. you any more inclined to start tss athletic as i'm now <laughs> calling them uh not anytime soon because i i think you really do have to have that next level energy to just hustle and uh, i feel like most of my hustle is put into the total soccer show and and soccer 101 and the like but i think if my my schedule ever cleared down the road yeah i, I would be interested in doing something at a much more local level because i think that's the thing that resonates the most for me or seems the most understandable i am not a billionaire i'm never going to be a billionaire so the idea of owning an mls team and having a gigantic stadium and everything that comes with that that's just not ever going to be a possibility it could be fun but not very likely what i think is really interesting are clubs like bug eaters um that's one that we have a little bit of connection to, but Ralph Central, New Jersey would be another one. And uh, one I especially want to shout out is Edgewater Castle in Chicago. That's a team that is uh, locally organized. I think they started off as an indoor team. I believe they've now moved into like a, a regional competition. But to my understanding, it started off as a team for refugees and for people who were sort of disenfranchised or didn't have that community. And it was this community organization that allowed people to come together to play soccer, but also, I think, build connections and build relationships. And I think that's... That's what grassroots soccer is meant to be. I think that's what soccer ultimately is meant to be, is you're interacting with people from different backgrounds, different cultural uh, upbringings, whatever it might be, different religions. And it brings you together to play this common sport and find common ground. And I think that's such a an interesting thing about lower level soccer. I think so often we gear ourselves towards like, is the fan culture? What are the beers? Do they set off smoke? Do they win games? But so much of it is about the communities brought together and how they're able to kind of do something that betters the the world around them. And so to Graham's point, that's where I think the kind of grassroots thing does appeal to me a bit more because it allows you to maybe bring in youth players who don't, if you have non, non-native speakers who are maybe a little, like don't have 
like like legal immigration status, they're not going to feel like they have a place to play. And if you could give people the opportunity to come out and kick a ball around, I think it gives them just a little bit of happiness. And if you can kind of build that and build that, and now you're building a team that has youth academies and development or a pro team that gives people an opportunity to play when they thought their careers were done, that definitely appeals. Helping people kind of further their dream certainly appeals. And doing so at a level that is... Uh, cost-effective and not going to wipe out all of my savings and finances such as they are is definitely an added bonus. Tay-Tay, I think you just got to the heart of it. We've talked about um, filling in forms and billionaires and closed systems, but at the end of the day, this game is about community and it's about people. Yes, sir. And on that note, Ryan Bailey, I'm looking forward to my team, the Richmond Kickers, playing your team, Charlotte FC, next week in the U.S. Open Cup. U.S. Open Cup is great for getting those sort of uh, different teams coming together from different levels to play each other. And I look forward to the Richmond Kickers uh, wiping the floor with your lot. Which is a distinct possibility, Taylor. Let's not forget that. (laughs) The magic of the U.S. Open Cup, indeed. And on that note, Taylor Rockwell, thank you so much for Soccer 101-ing with us today. My pleasure, my friend. I suspect by, that by me, the time many people have heard this, that game is long since over, and they will look it up and laugh at my optimism. But I appreciate uh, you not doing the same, Ryan. Don't count your chickens, Tato. I've learned that long ago. Graham Rutland, thank you very much for your S101ing too. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. Listener, thank you so much for joining us. We'll be back on the feed with another one next week. But for now, catch you later. <laughs>